Catherine Austin Fitz of the Solari Report is our special guest, taking us on a very deep dive into the dark world of even darker money, explaining how the United States has disappeared $21 trillion of your tax dollars for all kinds of nefarious purposes. The good news is that tyranny is expensive, to quote Catherine, and Catherine provides a window of hope for how to re-secure what remains and how to restore ordered liberty. My name is Kevin Kukaji, and with my good friend Gary Humble, this is the Freedom Matters Podcast. Gary, you know what this is? Ooh, this yeah. is going to take me a minute. It's Bruce. It's Bruce. Yeah. And do you know the name of the song? Come on. Should be familiar to you. Being Philadelphia. The streets of Philadelphia. The streets of Philadelphia. Well, she's way better at this than I am. No, I grew up in West Philly. That's that's why I did it, Gary. I grew, I grew up in West Philly, and Bruce is one of our favorite. I love Bruce. So, um... That, I thought that would make a great introduction. We have a special guest, guest today, Catherine Austin Fitz. That is how you pronounce your name, yes, right? Yes, sir, it is. My name is Kevin Stoddard Kukaji. <laughs> and my wife is a Philly native. We met in Philadelphia. Really? We married in Philadelphia. I went to law school and part of my undergrad in Philadelphia. So I'm Are interested. Are you a pen boy? <clears throat> no, Temple. Temple. My sister went to Temple. Yeah? Yeah. I was Temple undergrad, 85 to 87, then back to law school, 89 to 92. Wow. Okay. Lived off of Rising Sun Avenue in Northeast uh -huh. Philly. I know well, yeah. So you said West Philly? I grew up at 48th and Larchwood, West okay. Philadelphia. So did you take the L into town? No, 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 no. No, we got our... My parents drove me to school. Okay. So, yeah. So born in Philly, though. Born in Philly. <clears throat> yeah, my wife was born in Drexel Hill, and we actually lived in Drexel Hill after oh, really? we got married. Yeah. Her dad was a Presbyterian pastor um, of a small Presbyterian church called Bethesda Presbyterian off of Red Lion Road in Northeast yeah. Philly. So, you know, I spend a lot of time in Westchester in Philadelphia. My bank is in Philly, or it's in it's in Malvern, Pennsylvania. But my my dad was from Tennessee. Really? And he he went to the University of Pennsylvania Medical School and then stayed and became a Ended up as as head of surgery at the University of Pennsylvania, hmm. but I want you to know his accent got deeper every year, mm. <laughs> and he, you know, he never quite adapted to living in Yankee Land. Sure, yeah. I, it's it's the opposite for me. I've been here for almost thirty two years, and people still don't think I'm from the South. Like I've I've been here so long. Uh -huh. Only when I go to Pennsylvania do people say, "Hey, you've got a little bit of a Southern accent." Yeah. <clears throat> um, my wife went to Westchester undergrad. Really? Yeah. And oh, that's then, a beautiful community. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, she went to St. Joe's for her master's. But Well, my name is Gary Paul Humble, <laughs> and I drove through Pennsylvania once. <laughs> what? <laughs> that's it? Where, but you're from Louisiana, aren't oh, yeah, you? South you're Louisiana. Yeah. South Louisiana. So, so that's quite a contrast from Philly all the way to Louisiana. In, in Philadelphia, Gary, pretzels, the best street pretzels, I also was introduced to one of the best hot dogs I ever had off of a truck, actually. Um, I can believe right it. Right outside of City Hall. Uh -huh. It's gross, right? Dirty, and it smells like urine from the subway and everything. <laughs> and I was really nervous, but my roommate said, no, this would be really good. It was like a cheese dog. And What it, about cheesesteaks? You've had a Philly cheesesteak. Oh, yeah, steak. Philly cheesesteaks, yeah. of course. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. So, so welcome. And, and, um, I'm, I'm, I appreciate the Philadelphia connection. I know my wife will when she listens to this, <laughs> but that's not why you're here, Gary. Tell us why Catherine is here. It's like, tell us oh, why hope, Catherine is she, here. Hope, hope, bunch of reasons. But I mean, you know, here, here in Tennessee, it's been her, her name, you know, will, will pop up every now and then on all of these contentious issues that we're fighting with now, even here in Tennessee. Again, Kevin, you know, we always say that, that so, Catherine, you you may or, or may not. I mean, you you have a home here in Tennessee. Your, yeah. your father's from Tennessee, but do you do you see the concept that some Tennesseans have that everything's okay and nothing bad ever happens here in Tennessee? And Tennessee is just a bunch of good people and no and nothing, sinners in Tennessee. No, no, <laughs> no the le- the legislature is never going to pass anything horrible. I mean, it's just, that just seems to be the sentiment of Republicans to me here in Tennessee. It just it our our, our guard is down because we feel there's a safety of being in Tennessee. But what we're seeing is that all these things happening globally and all these things happening all across the country are here in Tennessee. And that's that's a right. lot of that's a lot of our messages. No, hang on a minute. This is not the time to lay down the sword. Those things you're you're not you're not in God's country, you know, quite yet. It's, there's still a fight on our hands. So anyway, I know recently this year we had um you had an interview with Senator Frank Nicely. Uh-huh. You know, again, one of our legislators that is really a man a, who recognizes the signs of the the, the times, right? <clears throat> like the man of Issachar, like the man a of man Issachar. who understands the times yep. and who knows what to do, right? Yep, and um, is passing legislation dealing with mRNA in our food, dealing with a a bullion depository, dealing with using gold and silver as currency. You did an interview with him. And I know you are are very well versed in all those topics, so I just thought it would be great for our audience to hear from you. How those things apply to Tennessee? Those things that you, what are you seeing around the country? What are you seeing around the world? Uh-huh. And why we should be concerned about those things here in Tennessee? Right. So first of all, I just have to say I really appreciate the opportunity to be with you today because I've been homesick. I confess, and I feel like I'm home. All right. <laughs> so it feels good. Um, what I would say is that Tennessee is. We used to say. Uh, in the Hickory Valley Women's Club, one of our slogans for Hickory Valley was, we're so far behind, we're ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and because of that, Tennessee is a very special state, and it's it's a destination point. People are moving here because of the quality of life and many of the things we have. At the same time, what I would say is there is a real reason to get up on the watchtower and watch what's going on and stop what's going on mm-hmm. because people in Tennessee enjoy a level of personal freedom, which is not enjoyed elsewhere. And if you look at the people who are trying to centrally control the economy and centrally control our government, they are on the move and they are very effective and they are very determined and they intend to essentially control our food supply and control our ability to do financial transactions. They want complete central control. They've said it publicly. They're very adamant about it. And their sites are on every community in the world, including Tennessee. And the pressure is on. I mean, when I left Washington in 1998, I said, if there is one issue I will fight and die for, it's the Second Amendment. What's happening in the legislature right now? They are trying to compromise. You know, and it's it's trench warfare. It's spiritual warfare. They are trying to compromise the Second Amendment. Now, what just happened? Another big headline this week. The CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, one of the largest banks behind the New York Fed, 
said, the time has come when to uh, institute the investments we need for solar and wind and other things. We need to create the ability for not just governments, but businesses and not-for-profits to confiscate land. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let me right. interrupt for a second. That's what we were talking about with Lyndon, right? This, And it's Jamie Dimon you're referring to, right? Right. right. Uh, coming out of the Clinton administration, Jamie Dimon said that very thing, talked about eminent domain, whatever they can do to confiscate property. And this is, the, I, I'm so right. glad you mentioned that, Catherine, because it, it dovetails perfectly from the end of our last podcast. We, ju- we had just brought right. up the eminent domain issues. There, there are two things that the people who want to centralize control want. They want our land, that's number one, and they want to put us on a transaction control grid, CBDCs is part of that, which will allow them to mandate everything else from healthcare policies to labor policies to everything. And they can't do that till they bring in the guns. So guns are only step one to complete central control. And so that's not the only thing we have to protect, but it's one of the things we absolutely protect. One of the reasons I'm so enthusiastic about Senator Nicely is he understands these things. He understands the connection between central control and financial transaction control and food and guns. You know, it can seem if if you're just a busy person and you're raising kids and you're busy, it can seem Uh, When you look at what's going on in the events of the world, it can seem very incoherent because it's this and it's the, you know, it's this happening in food and it's, you know, they they show up and say, a bird flu and kill your flock. And then they say, oh, Second Amendment, you know, and they take away your guns. And, you know, it just seems very scattered. But the reality is all these dots connect and it's a group of people who want central control and, and they're doing everything they can they can get it, but they want to sneak up on you. Yeah. Right. It's interesting you bring up the Second Amendment. I, I just put out a, a video before I walked in here about what's happening in Tennessee right now. Of course, you know, the governor has gone on news saying that we must take steps to get guns out of the hands of dangerous people. And when you hear something like that, the first question that comes to mind is, well, who gets to determine who the dangerous people are, right? Who are the dangerous people and what are those metrics? And so our legislature right now is looking at some form of red flag law. And there was a there was a clip that literally just released on Twitter before we walked in of uh, State Senator Jack Johnson saying, you know, he supports the move. They're, they're going to move towards something, but we can't. We can't call it red flag laws. There's we got to rebrand it. He's literally said rebrand it because too much stigma around the phrase red flag law. So they're going to call it. It's, we need to say ERPO or something like that. It's an extreme risk protection order. So it's a red flag law. We just we just can't call so it. So I think we need a breakout about what's really going on. You know, if you if you look at some of the shootings that are used to aspire the media event and the protest events. You know, I think the question is, what really happened in those events and why are they used like propaganda? Okay. Because you have a politician like the governor who feels cornered and he feels cornered because there is what I would call a psyop going on, Mm -hmm. a psyop of both operations and then media that makes the governor feel like I've got to do something. Right. And of course, I got to do something means that's how they chip away. So we're not yet comfortable as a society to talk about, you know, how do these psyops really happen? 
Who's financing them? You know, it's not 24 hours before somebody's showing up in Nashville financed by Bloomberg, right? Mm -hmm. You know, beginning to protest and, and put the politicians in the corner. And the politicians feel like they can't have an honest conversation with people about what's going on. Now, my my understanding was Senator Nicely was going to, I'm hoping, submit a bill that said to propose if you, you know, and this was in response to the governor's request, that people who are on SSRIs, all of these school, sh school shootings, as far as I know, were done by people who are on SSRIs. So they had chosen out a list of the most dangerous ones and said, okay, you can't buy a gun if you're on these SSRIs. Because to me, the problem is not... <clears throat> The problem is not coming from guns. You know, we've owned guns for centuries, and this kind of stuff didn't go on. Right? So, so what's changed? Uh, I think what's changed is the most powerful people in the world who enjoy tremendous security from people carrying guns. Mm -hmm. I mean, notice the president. If the president of the United States and the legislatures, you know, in the federal government want gun control, then they can stop having their security carry guns. It's pretty simple yep. to make guns go away. So they're using guns to protect themselves. They're using guns to protect their families. They just want our guns to go away. And it has nothing to do with school shootings. And I will tell you, you know, one of the questions I have is how many of these shootings are engineered or are operations? Yeah. Because that is possible. We know it's possible. So just if I want to camp there for just a minute. So we, okay. so, okay, so we can acknowledge there's a, and I, I agree with you. So if we can acknowledge there's a PSYOP going on. Right. And the governor and the leg our lawmakers feel that pressure, right. again, as you so aptly said, to do something. And they've got lobbyists in their ears. The national media is in their ears. How, how do we as Tennesseans, how do people counteract so, that so, PSYOP that's so happening? So you make it clear that you're not, not going to buy into the PSYOP. And you call your legislators and you make it clear in every poll and every survey, you make it clear in all your communications, but you communicate with your legislators, we stand behind the Second Amendment. We don't want this. I mean, if anything, I think schools should be allowed to have security that can yes. protect the students. 100% agree. Yep. Right. Talked about that. Right. If, if, if. So that, so there was, by the way, there was legislation on the table that got sent to General Sub, which means they killed it. There was legislation on the table that would have allowed administration and teachers to carry, right. to right. carry on premise. I to, think to, they should be allowed. To take away the nature of the soft right. target, right? Right. Um, well, they did away with that legislation. So I'm not sure what, what the fix is, but. Again, it gets back to, and not to be redundant, but I think it's it warrants repeating. If we had the right men who understood the times and who knew what to do, they wouldn't be kowtowed by these psychological operations at all. They would know from the outset. Gary and I would know that, right? We would say, well, we understand completely what is going on here. So that Right, but their constituents need to support them. Their constituents support them. Support them the if right. they do the right thing. Right. Right. But we have a we we've talked about it multiple times and we can go back to last session, not the one we're just finishing now, but last year when you have an entire constituency that not only shows up to make its voice heard, but brings in people from out of town who have traveled hundreds of miles, and the, they won't even allow them to speak. Our our we, we live in a time where our representatives don't respond to the pressure the way that they used to. They, they used to right. respond to it because they thought, well, if I don't respond, I'm out of power. 
but we know that now they don't feel that same pressure. They would they would just as quickly or more quickly abide by the pressure of let's say Vanderbilt in in the healthcare cabal or you know these this legislation that's being packaged by think tanks in D.C. rather right. than by Tennessee. They would respond to those because those are the people that are filling their pockets with campaign contributions. And right. the people don't ma- not, they don't matter. I mean, we've we've seen that, right? Let me end this one one section with this remark. The contrast between what happened um, with the bill last year on healthcare freedom and how they that well, I am correct that that's yeah, the, what it was the, the Patients' Bill of Rights. Yeah, Patients' yeah. Bill of Rights, where they didn't even allow people to speak on behalf of liberty and shut it all down and went went ahead with the lobbyists for um, corporatism. Compared to what happened last week, um, now by the time this comes out, a couple weeks ago, at the Capitol right. after the shooting, and within a day of this feigned mob, right, this ginned right. up people sent from out of state, paid for by out of state, right. all of a sudden they're capitulating to what that mob wants. Right. It's it's a it's a great study in contrast to as to what kind of pressure they'll respond to. So in my experience, pressure comes in a lot of different ways. So it's not a simple equation. One of the ways pressure comes is a control file. Which means what? Control file. Remember J. Edgar Hoover and the dirty pictures? Mm-hmm. Yes. Somebody's got dirty pictures on you or somebody in your family. Yep. And the next thing you know, they're over a barrel. Yes. Oh. When I when I got worked, it. I used to, I worked for, as assistant secretary of housing. Yep. And the secretary used to try and get me to make illegal, you know, do illegal transactions. And I would refuse and he threatened me by saying, you know, I'm, I'm looking into your file. I'm collecting, you know, I'm looking for the dirty those words. Yeah, 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 wow. yeah, yeah. No, no, we used to. Don't make me pull out my control file. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because we have had that discussion somewhat on here and a lot after and before these podcasts. We talk about, you know, all of these people are compromised in this right. way, right? People used to always ask that question about John Boehner. Um, they ask it about the Supreme Court, Justice Roberts and others. Like, why would they make these decisions which seem completely opposite to what their express worldview had been to that point? And it keeps driving back to, wow, what kind well, of control file do I, they have I think on there, this person? There are many different reasons. Control files is one. Mm-hmm. So I'm a publisher, and I, when I publish certain kinds of stories, I run into hacking and different kinds of hack attack. And literally, when I look at a story, I, my, and they're expensive. You know, I will say, am I willing to spend $5,000 and, you know, 10 hours of my time dealing with the hack attack I'm going to get if I publish the story? Mm-hmm. And sometimes the answer is yes, and sometimes the answer is no, because you can't, you know, you have to pick your fights. Right. You can't afford to, you can't afford to can't do, do those, mm-hmm. 10 of those in a week. It, it gets very expensive. There is one thing I've run into during the pandemic. Um, there are many allegations, and I've never been able to document or prove this, that the national security state has contracts with people who rise to a certain position. Mm -hmm. And so literally by contract, they are obligated to do certain things which are not in the best interests of their shareholders and not in the best interests of their customers. During the pandemic, we saw CEOs do things that were clearly against the best interests of their shareholders, clearly the best interest against the best interests of their customers. And the way they were behaving is not the way people behave when they have when they're being blackmailed through a control file. Because I've dealt with CEOs and and cabinet secretaries who mm-hmm. were being blackmailed by control files. But they behave like somebody who's got a national security contract, which means, you know, 
prison time if they break the rules. So tell me about that for a minute. So they've in in structure without naming any particular person. Right. If you have a contract and you are an individual who's a CEO of a private corporation that is under contract with the NSC, if what they're being asked to do itself could be criminal, how could they be subject to criminal punishment for violating that contract? Because under military law, that is possible. That It, it is possible wow. under military law to use those kinds of carrots and sticks to get someone to implement a mass atrocity. So... I understand the stick, which is potential, right, right tribunal and, and life in prison or death or something, is the carrot multiple millions of dollars protect you for the rest of your life type of thing? So there are many different kinds of carrots, but let's back off from it. Let's say the contract didn't exist. If you're a company that has a third of your purchases coming from a government agencies. Mm -hmm. You know, and they're just purchases, not you're not necessarily a direct contractor. Right. You know, if you say no and you don't do what the government says and you get those contracts. Bye bye pulled, contracts, yeah. Bye bye company. You know, it's not just bye bye you know, it's bye right. bye company. And and so you could be in a position where in the short run you do something terrible for your shareholders, terrible for your customers, but they've got you over a barrel. And that's why if you go county by county in Tennessee, what you will see is there is far too much dependency on the federal credit and federal mm -hmm. money. And the more we get dependent, the more this kind of stuff is happening. Mm -hmm. And and there's not any legislator who's not put in a pickle again and again related to those federal credit and and federal flows. We, so how do we how do we break that then? Because Gary and I agree, and we've talked about right. that before. We've that talked about the the hold that federal money has. You know, forty percent of our state's budget in Tennessee is federal dollars. Twenty billion of a fifty-two billion dollar budget so, federal money. Right. The last time I looked in a county, more than fifty percent on average of of a county's income is coming from sure. the federal government because you've got social security, you got people working for contractors, you got people working for companies that get you know, purchases from the government. I mean, what we have watched, central control has been implemented by running more and more and more of both the, the credit and the income through the federal budget. And that is intentional. It is not economic to do right. it that way. That has been intentional. And we've used both the fact that the central banks can print money and the federal government is playing that game. And I, I can give you thousands of examples. But let me tell you what we can do about it. Because... As they centralize the economy, it makes the economy weaker, okay? Right. And if you look at the money, the little secret, I, I'll give you an example. When I was Assistant Secretary of Housing, we started to— Can I interrupt for a second so sure. our audience knows because we haven't told them? You were Assistant Secretary of, of HUD during George H.W. Bush, is that right. right? So I was on Wall Street and was a partner at Dillon Reed & Company, which was an investment bank on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. I left in 1988, and in 89, I, I became Assistant Secretary of Housing under Bush. I then left and started a company called Hamilton Securities that got hired back on competitive bid to be the lead financial advisor for the Federal Housing Administration at HUD. And that is when I discovered and tried to stop the mortgage fraud and right. that got me into 11 years of litigation with the Department of Justice, litigating with the people who mm -hmm. are trying to protect all the fraud. Mortgage fraud is a huge 
business. It is a huge moneymaker for Washington. It is a huge moneymaker for Wall Street. And and engineering housing bubbles is one of the, you know, one of the big businesses right. in this country. And I didn't mean to get you off track. Yeah. I just wanted our audience to understand the credibility that you bring to this discussion. So that was helpful. Thanks. So go back to where you were. Okay. So when I was running Hamilton Securities, we had been asked to do $10 billion of auctions, of auctioning off defaulted mortgages. And we started to do due diligence in communities all across the country where there were a lot of foreclosed properties or defaulted mortgages. That's where I ran into a lot of the mortgage fraud. When I was Assistant Secretary of Housing, I found one home in a Chicago neighborhood that had been financed and defaulted five times in one year. That's when I knew something funny was mm, up. Jeez. <laughs> like, yeah, that, that's hard to do. Anyway, so so I found these neighborhoods. You said Chicago, though, right? That was Chicago. Chicago. That's so hard Chicago. to do in Chicago. No, Chicago's a piece of work. Anyway, but we found these three neighborhoods, uh, one in Chicago, one in New Orleans, and one in Los Angeles. And what we found was that the HUD Hope 6 program was spending $250,000 per unit to build or reconstruct public housing when that amount of money would buy and rehab four or five foreclosed properties that was in a you know, four to six block contiguous area. So within one neighborhood, I could, I could stop doing this, which would produce one unit of housing and do something else that would make four or five. And I took all my numbers and presented it to, we took it to the assistant of the person who ran the Hope 6 program, and I showed it to them. And I said, look, we could get four or five homes for the price of one. They turned bright red and said, but how would I generate fees for my friends? They actually said those words. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's an honest woman. You got to appreciate an honest woman. (laughs) Man. (laughs) Right. Well, but here's the thing. We've had, since World War II, we've had, you know, 80 years of fees for our friends. And when I tell you, I can't tell you how many neighborhoods where, you know, in Hardeman County, our average income is probably about $25,000 a year. So uh, I can't, for, there are so many neighborhoods in America where there is a contractor from Washington being paid 100 to $125 per hour to do something that somebody, you could just ship it, you know, somebody in Hardeman County could do for, you know, if they made $30 plus healthcare, that would be fantastic. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's called, you know, that's an arbitrage, but you can only find it if you map out the financial ecosystem. If you took for every county in Tennessee and you mapped out a sources and uses of money on all the federal dollars and credit related to that neighborhood, you would see fantastic arbitrages. So let me give you an ex- another example. So during the financial crisis, there's a lovely woman from Florida who couldn't find a job and things got worse and worse. She couldn't find a job. She's in unemployment. And finally, she had to get food stamps. And she had a problem kind of figuring out how it all works. She had some kind of glitch. So she called the tech support, the customer support number for food stamps, to discover that she was talking to a woman in India who was working for J.P. Morgan Chase, who was getting a markup on the customer support for the food stamps, because at the time they were running the electronic payments for, I think, 37 states. So she realized, wait a minute, why are we outsourcing to India a job that I would love to do, and if I was doing, I wouldn't need food stamps Mm -hmm. or unemployment insurance? Mm -hmm. So we're paying me not to work, and then we're paying somebody else, you know, in Asia to do a job I'd love to do. By design. Mm -hmm. It's very by design. It's central control. 
I mean, this is how you control centrally. Wow. So let me just give you a few little tips on how the money works at the federal government. The money is run to have a negative return on investment, okay? It, it's run to engineer central control. It's run to engineer dependency of people on the federal government because you, you're buying control. It's not run to optimize the economic right. health of a place. And we waste trillions of dollars. Okay, so number one is the waste. And number two is the creation of negative incentives. I once started a, a data servicing company in Washington to take people who were coming off of welfare with welfare reform, teach them how to do data servicing, which they could do in their neighborhoods, because these were generally very intelligent, capable women, but they had caregiving responsibilities for kids and you know, parents and grandparents and couldn't commute. They needed to be near their home and they needed flexible hours so if somebody got sick, they could run upstairs and handle it. So we started a data servicing center, and what we discovered was it took remarkably little money to teach them how to be a functioning taxpayer doing data servicing. And if you look at how much it paid to, to fund their welfare payments and their food stamp programs, it was unbelievably expensive. I mean, they, the government was paying, you know, fifty-five dollars to $75,000 a year to keep them on welfare, where for 20000 we could turn them into a taxpayer in six months. You know, wow. so, but what we ran into was the buzzsaw, because what we discovered is, you know, twenty dollars to $25,000 a year plus health care buys almost everybody out of dealing drugs. And that was a problem. We mm -hmm. were competing for the workforce. <laughs> so we ran into the buzzsaw. So, so since we're since we sort of landed in the world of monetary policy and and, and uh -huh. central control, I want to posit a couple of things to you and get your feet get your feedback on something. Okay, right. So, what would you say if you're you're in a state that is is and you're an advocate and you're looking at all these pieces of legislation and there was legislation coming forward that redefined money. Right. In such right. a way. And typically, you know, when you think about money and currency, it's it's currency is defined or regulated in a in in your country. And then you've got a some sort of foreign exchange rate or whatever to accept kind of a, a reciprocal nature, right, of, of accepting another mm -hmm. country's currency. OK. And that's that's typical. But what if you what would you think about a piece of legislation coming forward that redefined money in such a way that added Currency as agreed upon by intergovernmental agencies or two or more governments. What, how, how does that kind of definition of money hit you? So what that says to me is they want to make sure to centrally control anything that's used as money. And what that says to me is it's the end of freedom. Okay. So just so you know, we just passed that in Tennessee. Right. I know that. This year. Right. And that's being pushed nationally by the CSBS, the Conference of State Bank Supervisors. Right. And if I recall, that's being pushed nationally, of course, to ease right. regulations. Right. We, I think we're the fourth state so far now to pass that legislation. Right. So we're doing that here in Tennessee. I so, know. So – Catherine Austin Fitz, just for you have a problem with that definition of money. It's not yes, just I do. it's not just me being crazy and spreading no. misinformation. No. Okay. No. Uh, I got another question for you that I'd like your feedback on. Currently, our 1870 Tennessee state constitution 
Article 1, Section 37 states, sorry, Article 2, Section 31, sorry, states that our state government cannot invest tax dollars in such a way where it would cause the state to become an owner in whole or in part of a bank, a private bank, or a private corporation association of any sort. So we so which limits the government from investing its right. funds into bonds and of course it gets such a low rate of return. So there's a proposed constitutional amendment that changes the game. It still says that the government can't, you know, become an owner in whole or in part unless the comptroller and the treasurer of the state, only two men with no legislative approval, two men, by the way, who are appointed, not elected. Right. That's just also interesting for fodder. Upon their approval, the state could now invest part or all of a fund or trust in the state of Tennessee such that the state now becomes could become an owner in whole or in part of any bank or any private corporation. How does that strike you? So I'm not a fan of the state financing private banks. Now, depositing and financing in deposits, that's different. But an equity owner, I am a huge fan of the state having a sovereign bank, like the Bank of North Dakota. And let me explain why. In 2012, Greece was in the middle of workouts with the European Mm -hmm. Union. And the people were outraged at the asset stripping and the rape right. of the economy by the by the big EU banks. And they voted in a new slate of president who brought in a finance minister. And the first thing they discovered was the taxes were coming in on corporate systems controlled by private corporations who were loyal to the bank. And they literally could not get their hands on the tax receipts. And they could not affect transactions Basically, their money was controlled by the banks. Again, forgive me. Is this North Dakota or South Dakota? North Dakota has a sovereign state. Is bank. that is that the only state in the country yes. that has a sovereign state bank? Right. There used to be many other country uh, uh, states, including Tennessee, that had a sovereign bank. And and but for the now, sake of our audience, if you don't mind, can yeah. you just sort of mm-hmm. wrap what what is a sovereign state bank? What makes okay. that different than a regular? So bank? it's owned and controlled by the state, and it manages the state's bank account. So the bank that affects the state's transaction is owned and controlled by the state. Now, let me tell you why that's important. We've watched financial and economic sanctions happening around the world. If the state's deposits are in big New York Fed Mm -hmm. member banks and Mm -hmm. they decide, okay, either you pass these red flag laws or we're going to give you trouble, you know, in your money, you're over a barrel. So what you want in Tennessee is if you're going to be free, we have to have financial transaction freedom, which means the state needs to be able to collect taxes, the counties need to be able to collect taxes, and they need to be able to spend that tax money, and they need to protect the citizens and the local community banks and credit unions because you don't want the big banks coming in and consolidating your market share. That's what they're trying to do with the so-called banking crisis. So you need the the banks, the credit unions, the citizens, and the state to be able to affect transactions within the state and ideally outside the state without the New York Fed or the big banks shutting you down. So would that sovereign state bank to some degree be the – would back 
a a community bank or other yeah, state that's what banks? I was ask. How well, does it which, the which you directly? only you only want that bank to be a wholesale bank to support the the you first and foremost you want to support the community banks and credit unions and leave them private and leave them healthy. So you're trying to protect your local banking community from the sort of games of control that mm-hmm. you might see from Washington or Wall Street. So number one, if you I think I brought you a copy of the of the briefing memo we just did for the state. And essentially what it will tell you is the health of your small business community absolutely depends on the health of your small banking and credit union community. You need those small financial institutions. And literally, a healthy economy is a function of whether or not you have those institutions and they're multiplying. And that's been documented and proved. So we saw during the pandemic an effort to just shut down a huge amount of small businesses. Mm -hmm. The central bankers and the Fed, in a very short period of time, injected $5 trillion directly into the economy, but $5 trillion into very selective parts of the Mm -hmm. economy They then shut down the small business economy. What did that mean? One group's flush with central bank money. They can go in and poach assets cheap. It's, you know, it's economic warfare. Mm -hmm. Now, you've slaughtered your small business community, but we still have a lot of small businesses. If you throttle or shut down your small banks or consolidate your banks into big banks, you're going to just, that's the rest of your small business community are going to be toast right there. And I, I really recommend you read that memo because it was designed to make it clear that there's really a multiplier effect of healthy community banks and credit unions to healthy small business to healthy economy because that's where most of your jobs are coming from. So and and a lot of tax revenues. So if if this economy is going to stay strong, you've got to do that. Well, what what a wholesale state sovereign bank can do is first and foremost protect the state and its flows both in and out. But then what it can do, if you look at what the Bank of North Dakota does for the you know, for the local banking community and the credit unions, it's enormous how they can protect it from the different sort of pump and dump cycles that come out of Washington and and Wall Street. Finally, you know, a citizen in theory can deposit with the Bank of North Dakota, but there's no online banking. So citizens have the right to drive to the, you know, to the capital and put some money in, but they're really not competing with the small banks. And you don't want to, you want your, you want your retail banking to be done by the local banks and credit unions. But would that retail banking be subject to a state-controlled banking institution, or would they still be operating under, you know, Dodd-Frank, and would they still be subject to FDIC and that? Most of them are still going to be subject to federal laws, and part of it depends on whether they opt to be a state bank or a federal bank. And ideally what you want is you want the banks to be free to choose. Mm -hmm. In other words, you want multiple train tracks for financial transactions. You want them to be able to choose which train tracks they use. You you don't want to dictate right, not anything one size to them. Fits all. What right. you want to do is if the feds try and shut down and control by controlling the train tracks, you want to have state train tracks that say, you know, hey, buddy, you can't control us. Right. You know, we can transact without your train tracks. So how do you, knowing that our legislators are subject to controls that are different than the voice of their constituents, how do you get them to even want to do that bank when I imagine that the feds are in their pockets as well. So 
that's a complex thing. If you go to Soleri, I have an article called I Want to Stop CBDCs, What Can I Do? And there's a long list of things that people can do. The first thing we each have to individually do is walk out, out of the control grid ourselves. You know, so if you look at who's building the control grid, most of us are going to work every day and building it. Now, it's a pleasure to sit with you because apparently you're not. But a lot of people right. are. So number one is to clean up your own act. Mm -hmm. Number two, I will tell you what I said when I left Washington in 1998. I said everybody should sit down and take the time to map out the financial ecosystem in their county and find the opportunities to re-engineer how the money works one county at a time. Because all many of those legislators, no matter what the control mechanisms are, and we didn't finish talking about that, right. but what, whatever the control mechanisms are, they are financially dependent on a centralized system that is making, it's like an addiction, it's making them more and more dependent, more and more dependent. We can reverse that, but we have to reverse it bottom up one county at a time. And you can only do that by mapping out the money and starting to reverse how the money works. Can we talk about, before we finish today, the go down kind of the rest of the control systems? Yeah. So can I tell you the red button story? Yeah. Let me start with the red button story. Okay. So the red button story is a little story that tells you, gives you a framework for the problem we're discussing right now. So this is at the heart of the matter. In 2000, I'd been asked by a healthcare practitioner to speak to a group that she belonged to called Spiritual Frontiers Foundation International. And they have a conference once a year and they talk about how they can help evolve our society spiritually. So they're very nice people. They're very caring people. They're financially secure. They're well-educated. So I was giving a speech. It's called How the Money Works on Organized Crime that later became a very famous article called Narco Dollars for Beginners. And it was translated into many languages, a really sort of mm. rocket around the world. And it was meant to be a light and funny discussion about the intersection of organized crime with Wall Street and Washington, mm -hmm. you know, how the money works. So I'm in the middle of the speech, and I'm talking about the Dark Alliance allegations. I don't know if you're familiar with the Dark Alliance allegations. They were written up by a very famous reporter named Gary Webb, and it was about the narcotics trafficking by the U.S. intelligence agencies through MENA, Arkansas, as part of the Iran-Contra scandal. Mm -hmm. So the Congress had testimony on the Dark Alliance allegations in 1998. And while it was happening, one of the reporters I was working with, who I told you about before, wonderful reporter in Washington, was told by the Department of Justice that the U.S. financial system launders $500 billion to a trillion dollars a year. That was in 1998, I assure you. The number's mm -hmm. much bigger now. But at the time, we are and we still are the global leader in laundering illegal money. So our financial system is highly dependent on those monies. Ukraine? Yeah. No, never mind. <laughs> Ukraine, <laughs> Ukraine, the BIS and the Ukraine. Yeah. Oh, boy. Anyway, so I said to this wonderful group of spiritually evolved people, what would happen if we stopped being the global leader in money laundering? And they said, well, you know, we'd have a problem because, the, you know, if we stopped doing it, then all that money would go to Zurich or it'd go to Hong Kong or Singapore or London, you know, and we'd lose out. And, uh, you know, when you think about it, we'd have trouble financing the government deficit because we borrow money and that's where our checks come from and borrowed money. So I said, okay, let's pretend there's a big red button up here on the lectern. If you push that button, you can stop all hard narcotics trafficking in your neighborhood, your county, your 
state tomorrow, thus offending the people who control $500 billion to a trillion dollars of all dirty money and the accumulated capital thereon. Who here will push the button? And out of 100 people dedicated to evolving our society spiritually, guess how many would push the button? Uh, one. Yeah, one. I was going to say less than one. 10. <laughs> one. So if I had voted, it would have been two, but it was one. So I said to the other 99 people, why would you not push the button? And they said, we don't want our taxes to go up. We don't want our government checks to stop. And we don't want our 401ks and IRAs to go down when that money left and went to Singapore and Zurich, et cetera. And what I discovered that day, I was completely in shock. The problem was not that we would not push the red button. The problem was that we would not have an honest conversation about what was really going on and how we could what I call turn the red button green, how we could make money pushing the red button, because then we could. Now, let me explain the problem. If you're the president, so let's say we all get together and we vote Gary into the White House mm -hmm. in, uh, when is it going to be, 24? Oh, and uh, God help us all. <laughs> <laughs> so we vote you in. You walk in, you sit down at the desk, and your Carl Rove person says, you know, Mr. President, we, the American people have just spent billions of dollars to get you elected. And what they want is they want their community block development grant or their, their contract or their, they want an increase on their Social Security, their COLA. You know, so you turn to your Secretary of Treasury and you say, Mr. Secretary, you know, I need more money. And he says, well, you better be nice to the people who control $500 billion to a trillion dollars a year, all dirty money in the accumulated capital because... If the American people won't push the button, if 99% of the spiritually evolved people will not push the button, and you're the president, how are you going to push the button? Everybody wants their check. So we have an economy that's deeply dependent on organized crime, and it's deeply dependent on warfare. And as we've become more and more dependent, we have run more and more of the economy through the central budget with the help of control files. Mm. And... We have an addiction, and that addiction is we are liquidating our real economy and our real population. You know, we're poisoning our kids. Mm -hmm. So I used to have a pastor in Washington who would say, if we can face it, God can fix it. But this is a big problem, and it's been building up for 80 years. And our dependency on centralized printed money is about to end. So where do you think it's going? If, if you could so, give a— right kind of wrap it up I mean, I, I, Gary and I we could probably sit here for three hours and <laughs> carry this I absolutely on. could yeah so we definitely have to have a part two with Catherine for when, sure whenever she's back from the <laughs> okay. wherever she's but, traveling yeah if you could if you could conclude right. what you believe right so is I going to bring it to I, an I, end or, I, yeah so I'm going to bring it to an end by telling you the bad news and the good news okay yep the bad news is at the end of 1995 when the budget deal busted the guys who run the financial system knew the game was up. You know, they knew they weren't going to hold the reserve currency forever. And so what they did is they engineered a financial coup. And they started to disappear huge amounts of money from the federal government. If you go to my website at missingmoneysolary.com, you will have all the documentation that documents— Can you slow that down again so we, it's missing money— Missing money— dot salary.com salary spelled how s-o-l-a-r-i s-o-l-a-r-i dot yeah. com missing money dot salary .com. if you just come to salary there'll be a link to the missing money website so there is 21 trillion that's been disappeared from federal accounts 
the end game on that is the going direct reset, which started in 2019, which requires, you know, now that you've stolen everybody's money, what do you have to do? You have to lower life expectancy and lower benefits. To do that, what do you need? You need complete central control. That's what they want. That's why they want CBDCs. So, you know, after you've emptied the bank account, you know, you're going to have to let people down. You're going to have to abrogate your obligations to them. You've emptied essentially their retirement accounts. So, so what they're doing is they're doing a reset, which consolidates that financial situation. Now, one way to solve it is with total financial control, which is what works for the people at the top. Mm-hmm. That is what minimizes their risk. They're terrified of the crowd. Okay. And they're trying to implement financial transaction control and food control as quickly as possible. So when that day comes, they have complete financial repression Mm -hmm. to lower the boom. And we can talk about where that's going, but it's going to a form of control, which is far more invasive than this civilization has ever seen. And I will tell you, it's worse than the slavery we've ever known in this country. So can we have some good news, please? Yes. So now here's (laughs) the good news. Tyranny is phenomenally expensive. And if you study how the money works and you study what is possible with new technology, I will tell you the wealth on this planet could be hundreds of times what it is. Because freedom and people being free to be productive and function in market economies with the blessings of law. You know, if you look at the tax that has come from organized crime, from force, from warfare, from all this centralization, you know, words cannot express to you as an investment banker how expensive tyranny is. And it's amazing as a country we're still standing. It's amazing we're still as prosperous as we are if you look at the tremendous drain. So if we can bring transparency and begin to re-engineer how our money works, you know, one town and one county at a time, this is a bottom-up phenomena. When I tell you, you know, we don't have to go this way. If if you're the top guys, you can try freedom, but it's going to require radical change in culture and, and behavior for all of us, but it is absolutely possible. If you're the top guys, it's very risky because with freedom brings meritocracy. And if you look at who's the top now, they're not going to be in charge because they're not the best and the brightest. They're just the best at control. Mm-hmm. So, so psychopaths are not going to be able to be in charge if you have a meritocracy. And so their risk-adverse strategy is to do what they're doing, which is technology, digital technology allows them to go to complete control. You know, I always say to people in Tennessee, you're from Tennessee, surely you know what the mark of the beast is. That's where they're going. Mm-hmm. They, you know, if you go to my website, go to the article, I want to stop CBDCs, what can I do? In number 11, uh, it talks about transparency, and I list six of the best short videos to understand where these guys want to go. One of them is Richard Werner, the top academic scholar in banking in the world, at Malmo, Sweden, at a conference last May, talking about the fact that one of the guys who runs the top central bank in Europe told him personally, it's a chip, they're going to put it in your hand. Mm -hmm. That's what CBDC is. Kevin, consider the the resource we have here in Catherine Austin Fitz, right here in Tennessee, yeah. who loves Tennessee. And I'm sitting here thinking, I wonder how many people, Kevin, do you think from the current administration has ever reached out to Catherine to maybe pick her brain on what are some things we well, can you do know here in Tennessee I, to secure? So uh, I just got to tell you Other than Senator thing. Nicely? Yeah, uh, it's probably uh, the same amount as people that wanted to hit the red button, right? 
so so I, what I will tell you is I've had tremendously positive experiences with people, with the government. Every you know any dealings I've had since two thousand with people in state government, I. I, I can say nothing but great things about the people, you know, the bureaucracies of the bureaucrats I've worked with have been excellent. The people at the state house I've been worked. I just met with the treasurer. I was very impressed here, I'm, here in Tennessee. Yes. I was very, well, that, very impressed. That's exciting to yes. hear. So, so what I see are very hardworking, conscientious, good people, you know, who are limited by a variety of, restrictions you know there is no doubt senator nicely is a terrific resource and what everybody can do is you know support senator nicely and the other really good conservative legislators but you know go talk to your legislator and start to to get your legislator to understand that you will support them in doing the right things on all these different issues the other person you should support is your sheriff Mm-hmm. So in Harneman County, we got a new sheriff elected in about 10 years ago who's fantastic. You know, if you have good—I was just out in Lewis County, and I was meeting with a group of people, and one of the deputy sheriffs are there. And if you look at what they've been doing in Lewis County to really protect constitutional freedoms and to make sure their sheriff's office understands constitutional freedoms. So there's a huge amount you can you can do. A lot of this is the constituents getting in there, you know, and making sure that that your legislator is doing the right thing and not mm. doing what his control file. Don't let his control file talk to him. You talk to him. Yeah, we do. I th- there's so much. I, I we got to cut it just because of time. But thank you so much, Catherine, for joining us and um, kind of making my mind explode, but confirming so many things that. Uh, I've not only felt that we've talked about, uh, so it's great to have your expertise to bring le- uh, to bring gravity to it, right? right. To increase all, the series. All I'm going to tell you is follow the money. <clears throat> yep, always do. Follow so tell people money. all the time. And, and I appreciate too um, that you, because you did it again. You you continue to bring the message that the the way you start these things and pushing back is at the local, local level, yep. whether it's the sheriff or you mentioned earlier about really figuring out how your, how your County runs, you know, and where that money comes from and, and working to restructure that from the ground up. And I think that's a, that's a, that, that is a really great message because that's something that everyone can do. Right. Well, start with yourself. Yeah. I mean, go through your income statement, go through your balance sheet, are you banking with one of the New York Fed member banks that's doing all this corruption? And you're not banking with a good local Tennessee bank? Tennessee has a wealth of great local banks. You know, that's step one. If you come to our website, it says, who's your farmer? Who's your banker? Where's your money? Mm-hmm. Come clean yourself first. Good Excellent. stuff. Thank you. Thank, Thank you so you. much for being here with us. <laughs> If you'd like to learn more about Tennessee Stands, visit TennesseeStands.org to donate, volunteer, or get more information about what we're doing to preserve liberty for the people of Tennessee. You can also follow along on all social platforms at Tennessee Stands. As Thomas Paine reminded us, those who expect to reap the blessings of freedom must, like men, undergo the fatigue of supporting it. <laughs>